0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning. Welcome to part four of four on the book of Romans. Let's begin with a prayer. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And indeed, Lord, we thank you for this word that you gave to Paul so long ago. And we thank you, Lord, for the way your truth rings out over the 2,000 years, over the centuries. And we ask, Lord, that you would hide the truth of the gospel deep within our hearts, that it would take root there and bear fruit, and then it would go forth, that it would not stay hidden because good news can't be kept silent. But, Lord, would you give us the grace to live it and to proclaim it fully. For your glory's sake and in your name we ask. Amen. If you were here or if you heard online some of my earlier lessons, I've chosen as my title for these four weeks, Inwardly Digesting. Romans, because I do think that um, there are ways of approaching Scripture, um, uh, ways of sitting with Scripture that cause it to get into our bloodstream, so to speak. And I certainly, as a, as a young adult, uh, young, young adult, as a teenager, I was at a summer camp where we had to memorize Scripture, and it was competitive memorization of Scripture. And I've learned over the years that I'm a little bit competitive, but I'm bad at, like, sports. So my competitive nature comes out in things like competitive Bible memorization and I really excelled. I got lots of points for my team because at this summer camp that's how you get points is by achieving all these different milestones and I was a high achiever when it came to Bible memorization. So I had all of these verses from Romans just stuck in my bloodstream and I say in my bloodstream because when I was an actor we learned, you learned, we, we told each other that we couldn't Uh, be a character up on stage, you couldn't live into the character that you're playing from a given play or a film if you didn't have the words that the character was saying in your bloodstream. And this was especially important for a Shakespearean play. You had to memorize it and get it to the point where it wasn't still freshly memorized. It had to be so well memorized that you could say it as if you were saying the words that I'm saying right now, as if they were just springing forth from your mouth without any premeditation, although I've got a little premeditation today, but still. Um, that, and so that really is true of Scripture as well. We want it to be in our bloodstream because then God will bring it forth in our lives in the moments when we especially need it, and he'll minister to us through the Word um, because it's already there, hidden in our hearts. So again, we have looked at all... Uh, almost all of Romans, all of the parts of Romans that you're probably extra familiar with. Romans chapters 1 through 11, we looked at these last three weeks. And I certainly have, um, as usual, I've bit off more than I could chew. It's a lot to try to cover in just three short, or four short classes that are less than an hour. But as you look at the book of Romans, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, you see Paul presenting first the bad news And then the good news. First, the bad news of our sin. And and he starts convicting his hearer of sin by starting further afield. He starts in chapter one by getting someone to say, oh, they're so bad, aren't they? Oh, they're terrible. And then he turns it right back around in chapter two and says, you too. you also, who are you to judge? Because you, though you perceive that you are righteous, you do the same things. And so he's looking at convicting both um, the younger brother, so to speak, from Jesus's parable of the prodigal son, and then also turning around and convicting the self-righteous older brother, so to speak, from that same parable, you know, as if from that same parable. So Paul is looking at chapter one, chapter two, convicting of sin, closing the net more tightly around the hearer. You could think, and this is true for evangelism, if someone doesn't believe in sin, point them to the news. Do they believe that there's evil in the world? While evil, we're not just helpless victims of evil, we're complicit in it generally as a human race. And then you can close it a little tighter. Um, do we see it not just in people over there, those kinds of people, but also in our kind of people? Do we see it not only in that country, but also in our country? Do we see it not only in that state, but in our state? Do we see it in our own city? Do we see it in our own community? Do we see it in our own family? Do we see it in our spouse? Yes. Then, or our roommate if we're single, or our sibling if we're single, do we see it then in ourselves? And woe to us if we're not able to recognize sin in ourselves, but we see it everywhere else. So that's the bad news. And then Paul goes on to tell the good news. The good news is, and he uses this language about the righteousness of God, the good news is that God's righteousness exists in two different capacities. His righteousness is that holiness and justice by which he justly punishes um, those who deserve punishment. He justly punishes ungodly sinners. And yet his righteousness is also encompasses his mercy, and this is a major part of Paul's message in Romans. God's righteousness is revealed not only in his justice, but also in his mercy, not only in justly punishing sinners as they deserve, but in rescuing undeserving sinners, the ungodly, from their own actions and the consequences of their actions by redeeming them, by selflessly um, going to the cross, by humbling himself and taking on the punishment himself um, that is justly ours. And Paul gets into that in Romans chapter 3. says. beautiful ways. There at the cross, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Both his justice and his mercy are married in the event of the cross. Thank goodness for us, because that means that he is no longer angry with us. He no longer condemns us justly for our sin. Instead, we are forgiven, we are free, and we have the hope of eternity. The righteous shall live by faith is the bedrock of Paul's argument. And we see it summarized in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then also echoed again in chapter 4 and elsewhere throughout the letter. Moving on to chapters 5 through 7, we'll see that we saw a couple weeks ago that, or last, yeah, two weeks ago, that Paul there is looking at the past benefits of our salvation are secure. Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and our atonement has been made. And as, as from this point in faith, if we are believers now, then that point of conversion, that point of first believing in Jesus, is in the past. We have been justified by, by faith through grace. So what? So what for today? That's what Paul looks, looks at in chapters 5, 6, 7, and even 8. What does that mean for us today? Well, he points forward to the future reality. Because we've been justified by grace through faith, what that means is that on the final day when Jesus, the judge, the righteous judge, comes to judge every single human being, when every single one of us stands before him with all of our thoughts and words and deeds, um, the internal workings of our heart laid bare for all to see, laid bare for the judge of the universe to see, By God's grace, because of the gift of Jesus' own death and resurrection, we will not be condemned but we will, be, we'll, we'll be, we will stand. That's the language that Paul uses again and again, first in chapter 5 and elsewhere. We will stand at the last day. When we stand before the judgment seat, rather than falling in condemnation and judgment, we will stand, and we'll be raised to stand for all eternity, to stand on the bedrock of God's work for us in Jesus Christ. And so because there's been that exoneration, um, as Paul, um, one commentator says, we're, we're not in prison We're freed from the just penalty of our sins, and we're freed from that ongoing punishment. So we, as Christians, we are are ones who are free. We're not living in jail. Um, And we're free not only from death—yes, we'll undergo death—but we'll be raised from the dead, as we've had our wonderful series on Sunday mornings in our sermon series— but there are also benefits in this life. There is a freedom from the law and the accusation of the law. There is a freedom from sin that comes into play. And the freedom isn't as free as we want it to be just yet because of the overlap of the ages, the overlap of the old age of sin and death, and the overlap of the new age of life through faith in Jesus Christ and grace being extended to us, extended to us from God means that there are two creatures. There's the old Adam and the new Adam, the old Deborah, and the new Deborah. And for a time, this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, or our death, my death, whichever happens first, there's the overlap. The old man and the new man, the old woman and the new woman. And that brings about this conflict in our psyche that Paul addresses so beautifully in chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I do not do the thing I want to do, but the thing I hate I do. We see ourselves sinning again and again. We should know better. We still do it. And and maybe it's still even the exact same sin. We don't see always the release that we long for or the change that we long for. We work for it. We pray for it. We trust God for it. And yet, it is in God's hands to transform us. And transform us, he will. There is that assurance that at the last day, we'll be be both uh, glorified, we'll be raised perfectly um, without sin no more, and we'll also be raised from the dead with a new body. Um, And yet, in this time, there is that Um, longing, that groaning, as Paul says in chapter 8, that groaning in the midst of suffering caused by sin and death and the decay in this world, and also the groaning as we long for, um, for our holiness to be manifested in our lives. We talked to just a little bit, the mysterious love of God brings us that freedom from condemnation and that assurance, even in the midst of suffering, that God is not mad at us. We might experience trials and sufferings in this life, but because of our justification by faith, because of what he's done for us, we can trust he's not sending us this trial because he's mad at us because we did something. It simply is a part of his work in our life, in this life, and we can trust him for the outcome of it. Um, If that's something that rings a bell for you, then I'd encourage you, go read all of Romans 8, probably every day for a long time, (laughs) and trust in God's assurance, his love for you, in spite of the suffering you might experience. Mm -hmm. The mystery of God's love is present there in chapter 8, but we also see the mystery continuing on in chapters 9 through 11, and i didn't even touch on these last week. I really dodged them. But um, the mystery in chapters 9 through 11 is the mystery of election and predestination, which is one that we struggle with. We struggle to understand when it might feel as though we are choosing God and saying yes to God, and yet how then is our own sense of choosing encompassed within his knowing and his sovereign power? If he is eternal and he is God, then surely he knows what we'll say or think or do before we ever say, or think or do it. Um, And so um, it's not meant to, the doctrine of election is not meant to give us a sense of fatalism, but rather of a joyful thanksgiving to God for his protection of us, his provision of us, and ultimately for our justification by faith through grace. Because again, election and predestination are tied integrally into that justification by faith and not by works. If there's something that we can do to earn God's approval, and our eternal salvation, then we darn well better do it. Um, But again, resting in his work on our behalf involves also resting in the fact that we don't know everything, that we cannot grasp with our fallen, broken, and even just creaturely minds all of who he is or what his plans encompass for all of the people of all of the earth. And so again, Paul summarizes the gospel at the end of chapter 11. All are consigned to diso- to disobedience. All of humanity has sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, God has extended mercy, given the gift of his mercy to all humanity regardless of ethnicity. Jew and Gentile alike are offered the good news in Jesus Christ, offer the forgiveness that his death secures for us, offers the eternal life that his resurrection secures for us. And yet, there are some, of course, as we know, who have the gift sitting under the Christmas tree, and they have not opened it. They have not received that gift um, of salvation through believing in Jesus Christ, and yet God shows no partiality. Through Jesus Christ, the um, relationship with God and the benefits of being in relationship with God have been opened up for all regardless of ethnicity or previous religious life. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. Yes, that's great. Any qu- I, I summarized all of chapters 11 and I still have five more chapters to dig into so I might not take very many questions but you have, if you have any thoughts or questions now would be a great little time while I catch my breath Okay. yeah please Tommy like what you are saying last Sunday how you began um, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth but and how some commentators say sin as good news like the recognition of sin, by definition, the Holy Spirit uh, convicts of sin. So when one recognizes that they're a sinner, the, the Holy Spirit, there's prevenient grace, there's pre existing grace already there. Um, and so we think that's, you know, we made the first move and it was really yeah. God was there before. Yeah. And so that kind of ties in with election mm-hmm. because it's to understand that is to realize, okay, yeah. you know, this is something more than than what we're bringing ourselves exactly. to. I'd refer you to two with that idea of um, God's grace. God's um, Two ideas, first of all, and I quoted this last week, although I forgot his name already. My brain has too much stuff going on. But his first name is Craig. He was the apologist um, that Matt Schneider loves who came during Lent this year and his second sermon, Pardon. I knew there's just too many Craigs around here. I knew it wasn't Smalley, but I couldn't remember. Craig Parton, thank you so much, David. And his second sermon was fantastic. I mean, they're all good, but I really loved his image of a house. You know, the body of Christ is like a house there in our salvation is like a house. On the outside of the house, there's this calling for decision, the proclamation of the gospel and this saying, do you believe? come. Uh, make your decision as as they say with billy graham crusades or now franklin graham festivals make your decision for christ that kind of attitude of really pressing for someone to fall in fall into grace fall in to receive what god has done for them and yet on the inside of the house as as believers here on the inside of the house we look around and the sign says to god alone be the glory To God alone be the glory. It's only from the inside, from the eyes of faith, that we can really understand and receive the doctrine of election. It is not meant to be our first foot forward in evangelism to someone else. Um, So just keep that in mind. Thank you, Tommy. Okay, moving forward, moving into our passage for today, passages, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I must be crazy. Um, Remember that on the back of your handout, your handout is a little thicker paper, and I just encourage you, these are all great verses to memorize, and you could just cut them and tape them onto your mirror, because it's a little thicker paper, it might last a little longer, if that's something that works for you. But beginning with chapter 12, um, verses 1 through 2, what we're going to find is that Paul is going to summarize, or excuse me, these two verses serve as a bridge for all of what has come before with all of what will come after in the remainder of the letter. Let me read it to you and we'll talk some more about it. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, whenever there's a therefore in scripture, I'm sure you've heard this before, go back and find what it's there for, what it is pointing back to that has happened previously. Paul here is pointing to all of God's work all of God's saving work in Jesus Christ, all of what he has been talking about for all of the whole letter leading up to this point, because God has given himself to us, because God has sacrificed his own life, (laughs) because God has died for us upon the cross and he rose again, because of all of this, we then find strength for today. Because of all of this, because of all of what he has offered, um, we then offer back The vertical response to God's grace is one of grateful and total self-offering. Giving back to God, that living sacrifice. Um, He is the one atoning sacrifice. I love this language. We hear it all throughout the book of Hebrews, but we also heard it in Romans as well. That word propitiation is used um, by Paul here and then also by John in 1 John to point to the fact that Jesus is the one true sacrifice. Again, that's tied to justification by grace through faith. We cannot offer anything to God that would atone for our debt. We cannot repay our own debt ourselves. God himself has offered himself in Jesus' own offering um, as he is the one true uh, sacrifice. And yet, on the other side of having received this grace, our response is one of spontaneous gratitude and self-offering. This is God's work still. Now he's working through us to offer all of who we are and all of what we have back to God. And Paul here says bodies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But I love the way we say it in our liturgy because in our communion liturgy, we don't say it every Sunday, but we say it during Lent and Advent. We say it at the end in our post-communion prayer, which changes. And this is the way it used to be after communion that we would say this prayer. um, All the Way up until the nineteen until the American Prayer Book, this was after communion in the 1662 Prayer Book, and so we now, after 2016, here at the Advent, we say it after we've already received because we come to the table with nothing in our hands, and we want to remind ourselves that we come to the table with nothing in our hands. The sacrifice of worship is nothing compared to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Um, We bring nothing to the table, and yet afterwards. Um, We we pray and say, um, here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Ourselves, our souls, and bodies encompasses our whole being. All of our lives are meant to be given back to God the Father as this living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is one that's perpetually given, right? If the animal being sacrificed doesn't ever die, then it's being continually given. And this living sacrifice is something that we are doing right now in this life in in preparation because we'll be doing it for all eternity in the Lord's presence in heaven. So again, this it's a vertical response back to God's grace. It's one of grateful and total self-offering. And we'll see in these coming chapters that Paul is going to explain what this looks like. And the coming chapters, the, all of the coming chapters, chapter, the rest of chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, they're all about horizontal living. They're all about how we treat one another, how we love one another as Christians living in community together. And so what we see is this vertical response of giving back to God in, in grateful and total self-offering is also, also plays out horizontally in sacrificial love and the service of one another, serving and loving our neighbor, as we say from Scripture. So what we 'll see is that um, the, these two verses prepare us for all of what will come um, afterwards and Just one little note: um, an observation though it 's our bodies that are presented, there are only um, only two verses in the remaining several chapters, zero in on physical immorality, the things that we think about when we think about denying the flesh. When we think about denying the flesh, we think about the sins literally of our body, eating, drinking, um, sexuality, all of those sort of things. And yet those are just one little glimmer of the entire kind of sinfulness that Paul is getting at, um, that this renewed life as Christians um, is a denial of. And the self-denial that he's talking about really in these chapters is denial of pride, Um, that pride that ruins relationships, (laughs) that pride that cannot restore and reconcile following conflict, that pride that would say it's my way or the highway, Um, he's going to talk about this again and again and appeal to them again and again to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God by denying themselves and um, putting the interests of the other ahead of their own interests, particularly within the body of Christ. So he jumps right into it in verses three and following. We see this um, verses three through eight. um, My ESV says gifts of grace. And you can go ahead and read that on your own. What you'll see is that this horizontality Uh, our horizontal relationships is played out in the way we recognize the gifting that God has given to each one of us. We celebrate um, how God has given each one of us gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul here is echoing what he says um, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which he wrote at least, you know, a year, we think, or a little bit more than a year before he wrote Romans, he had written First Corinthians, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings, and this um, there's this similar discussion of di- the diversity with, of gifts um, in the body of Christ and that unity and harmony that's actually meant to be there. Though there are diversity of gifts given, the body is united in love. Paul also says elsewhere in the letter to the Ephesians, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ. Gift and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Jesus, following his death, resurrection, and ascension, comes victorious, um, bearing gifts to be given, um, to be doled out to those who are in him by faith. There is the grace that gift of his saving love for us, that charism. That caritas, and then, but then also, there's the there's the caritas of grace, and then the charism of the spiritual gifts given out for the body of Christ. Um, this is part of our earthly inheritance of the Holy Spirit that points forward to our future heavenly inheritance in full. Again, the different gifts are given, but they're all equal, and that is the same bottom line as in 1 Corinthians. Every member of the body and every gift given by the Holy Spirit is equally important for the building up of the body. There are differing gifts, but the same grace, and therefore those who are tempted to pride because of the gift that God has given them just to them should think of themselves with sober judgment, and this is what he says in verse 3. "'By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among among you, "'not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, "'but to think with sober judgment.' each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Um, Also, this is echoed again a few verses down in verse 16, the second part of verse 16. Um, Live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own sight, Um, which in in some translations say never be conceited in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Uh, something that I would say is on the lips of a creature who lives humbly by faith would be i wouldn 't put it past me." I consider this. this is my own thought about a slogan for sanctification. Um, as Christians, there ought to be shock and contrition for our sin, but we 're no longer surprised by it. Um, I love how Frank Limehouse would say about the sin, sin of others, you know, whenever you hear about something scandalous, well i 'm just shocked. And then he would say, but I'm not surprised. Because if you have a low view of human nature and you recognize the sin that grips each one of us, even us as Christians, then you'd say, well, I'm not surprised. I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past her. I wouldn't put it past them. But then if we say that, we also have to say, I wouldn't put it past me. I'm shocked that sin still has a grip on me as a, creature uh, in Christ, a new creation in Christ, and yet the old creature is still lingering on, waiting, wandering around like a chicken with its head cut off, waiting for that final death note when I die. So I wouldn't put it past me. Um, Again, this slogan encompasses honesty, humor, down-to-earthness, fearlessness, and the silencing of self-justification. I consider it an antidote to the poison of hypocrisy. So this continues. Um, Paul goes on to talk about love, which is behind everything that he's saying, and this statement in chapter 12, verse 9, is actually a bookend with um, what he'll say later in chapter 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In the Greek, there is um, literally no verb. It just, he just says genuine love, like a heading, followed by a series of participles that describe this genuine love. Genuine love is free from hypocrisy. Genuine love means that our insides match our outsides. Unlike the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, whom Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, the outside is all white and pretty, but on the inside there's death and decay and bones and gross stuff. Um, He wants us to be um, white on the inside and the outside, for the tomb to be opened up so the fresh air of the gospel can come in, that honesty, that vulnerability, that freedom, that forgiveness, and that transformation. So again, what follows this urging, um, genuine love, is a whole series of staccato imperatives that seem to have no structure. But they elaborate on this good, um, the good uh, that the renewing of our minds approve of. Um, it 's called this is called Paranesis, which is a genre of ethical teaching. Jesus um, incorporated this style of teaching, especially we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we see it also in the book of Proverbs. Um, so there are little little thoughts show one another honor he says in um, let 's see oh gosh i 'm not going to find it. outdo one another, verse ten, outdo one another in showing honor. I love what Luther says about honor he says. Oh, it is a great obligation to prefer one another in love. It is much easier to give to another or to serve others with the body than to despise oneself and to esteem all others more highly than oneself. Humility, again, of the Christian is a mark of faith. Um, and Paul will say this again and again. He highlights sacrificial hospitality. Um, True hospitality involves hosting those who cannot host you back, whether it's because they're poor or single or socially cast out. True hospitality involves, in a sense, hosting Jesus himself, as he says in Matthew 25, or as Hebrews says, hosting angels unawares. And it's a mark of pastoral ministry, hospitality. He goes on to talk about harmony and humility. In chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And he's echoing here things that are um, said elsewhere in Scripture. We hear in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, and leading into his wonderful hymn about Jesus Christ, um, Paul says to the Philippians, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, this humility involves considering others better than ourselves. Another aspect of this humility and this love played out in relationship with one another is found here in the um, verses 14 and then also 17 through 21, this loving those who hate us, loving those who are considered enemies. This is an aspect of what it means to be a Christian, and we hear it echoed from Jesus' own teaching, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul writes here in chapter 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And continuing on in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again... We are um, the lex talionis of the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back in equal measure. That was actually a stopgap in the Old Testament to prevent people from escalating violence um, in seeking revenge. Um, And yet, that is not the language of the New Covenant. That is not the language here of the New Testament of Jesus and here also of Paul. The lex talionis, or tit-for-tat relationships, are bad because they don't honor the whole body or the Lord. They are unbecoming because it betrays the grace that we have each received. If we've each been given undeservedly um, from God himself, then we ought to also undeservedly give forgiveness to those, um, even, um, even those who don't know what they've done even those who have not yet repented of what they've done, by God's grace, he can give us the strength to forgive them. And that doesn't mean that relationship is fully restored yet. That relationship, that fullness of reconciliation is a two-way street that involves repentance of the one who sinned or hurt the other and also forgiveness on the part of the one hurt. And yet we are called, regardless of whether or not reconciliation is complete, through that mutual, through that repentance and the forgiveness, we're still called to forgive and urged to forgive for our own sake, by offering grace to those who've hurt us, we're actually, again, as he says, heaping burning coals on their head. We are showing to the evil one that we will not become like him. The best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him on his head. And again, by treating a so-called enemy kindly, we're increasing his guilt and leading him to repentance for the wrong that he's done. Again, we see here in verse 21, um, do not overcome; be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We see here WHO with a capital Uh, W is behind the hurts and the divisions that are caused within the body of Christ Um, to quote Martin Luther in his great hymn A Mighty Fortress our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe and as Luther says in his writings the evil one rejoices when we retaliate when a wrong has been done to us because it means then that our enemy is making us like himself In other words, our enemy is making us evil if we respond in like kind. Instead, we are called to absorb the evil And suffer by God's grace and respond with mercy and kindness. And again, this doesn't mean that we don't expose evil for what it is and call it what it is and seek justice. But still, we are called to respond with mercy and kindness, seeking to make our enemy like us, or we should say, like the new us in Christ, the new creation in Christ. Again, echoing Jesus' saying in chapter six of Luke's gospel Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Going on from here, going on from chapter 12, Paul is going to zero in really quickly in chapter 13 to talking about who does take um, vengeance in this life. We as Christians are not called to avenge one another or ourselves, but we can, but we can see in the public authorities, even though they be secular. God is allowing them to be in leadership over us. Um, And this was especially important for Christians when Rome was in power because the Romans persecuted them, and yet they needed to respect that secular authority and the... um, the rule of the sword, and to trust that God was still sovereign even over that. And so Paul is very explicit about it, that um, God has allowed that person to come into authority for a reason, and he he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so he's telling them, as far as you can, be on the right side, uh, even of the secular authorities. Um, He's going to go on. He says, says, O secular earthly rulers, our respect. Owe them our taxes. That's fine for them to take even exorbitant taxes. Owe them honor. But then he goes on in chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Again, here we see God uh, love played out in this second greatest command that Jesus has said, and this is the sacrificial love that's the central tenet of the new covenant. And we'll see it played out again in chapter 14. Paul will say, and here in chapter 14, he is addressing an issue that was also present among the Corinthian church, um, where there were weaker believers and stronger believers. The weaker believers were the ones who were more uh, restricted in terms of their rules, the rules that they imposed upon themselves out of, um, out of conscience sake. And the strong were those who felt freer with regard to non-moral issues. And yet the two were called um, to live in harmony to, together. And so chapter 14 verses 1 through 12, Paul addresses the weaker group and says to them, judge not. Don't judge the stronger group just because they're doing things that you wouldn't do because your conscience is stricken by them. And then to the stronger group, he says, scandalize not the weaker brother. Just because you feel like you have the freedom to do this, and in Christ you do if you believe you do, still don't do it in front of this other Christian um, just because it will hurt him and or her and he talks about would you destroy the work of god to destroy the work of god for food or for any other means not only insults god but it fights against god and tears down what he builds up it is a means to war against god without without ceasing um the bells are ringing and i will not get all the way through chapters 15 and chapter 16 but i want to point you to one thing um i want to quote two things and say um first or, quote one thing and point you to what Paul's bottom line is. First of all, um, Luther's words about a Christian are applicable here or anytime you hear about this law of loving one another. Luther says, a Christian man or woman is a most free lord of all, subject to none. And then in his next sentence, he wrote, a Christian man or woman is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Because we are free we also allow ourselves to be constrained out of love for others. Again, this constraint out of love, this sacrifice out of love is something we are called to as Christians and it is something that is impossible for us to do. And when we feel how impossible it is, even as if it's as simple as saying to our husband, Don't worry about the dishes in the sink or whatever it is that you want to get him to do or whatever it is that seems so minor. Even as we let those things go, when we feel as though we cannot and we just have to make it right and make them do the right thing, honestly, we need to hear the gospel again. When we're in that moment of trying to give others the law and and distancing ourselves from others in love and we just can't sacrifice for them— What we need to do is not to try to tell ourselves, well, I need to love my neighbor as myself. What we need to do is return to the foot of the cross in repentance and say, this law of love is something I cannot do. I cannot do it in the perfection with the glory with which God himself does it. And he has done it for me and to receive once again what it is that God has done on our behalf in Jesus Christ, to receive the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness there at the foot of the cross. And then it's God's love itself that sets us um, back up on our feet, empowers us by the Holy Spirit to go out and sacrificially loves, love even the unlovable. So with that, again, we're going to go from here. Trusting in God's grace to do his work to bring about the obedience of faith that Paul describes here in these final chapters about loving others well. Let me pray in closing.